Welcome to Rink Wrap, the Bruins podcast with your host, Mick Collagio. Mick has been covering the Bruins since the Boston Garden days and has the guests and the insights on the hockey world from the local to the NHL. So drop what you're doing, drop the puck, and listen in on Rink Wrap with Mick Collagio. Hey everyone, it's Rink Wrap, episode 23. Coming to you from the Standard Times in New Bedford, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Mick Collagio, and uh, we have an interesting week in Bruins history here because uh, Rick Middleton's number 16 went to the rafters last night, which tells you that this recording is November 30th, Friday, and uh, we're doing it late in the afternoon. Sun's already gone down, and... Um, before I head out of this office, I wanted to share some things. Uh, first off, uh, Rink Wrap, the podcast. You can hear us in prior episodes wherever you get your podcast, Google Play, iTunes. We link to them on our stories on southcoasttoday.com. And we link them. I put links in my blog sometimes on uh, blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins. That is the Rink Wrap blog. And um, uh, let's see, and omny.fm. So if I think of anything else, I'll mention it along the way. You can read the Rink Wrap blog, uh, at, as I mentioned, uh, blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins. You can follow me on Twitter at Mick Collagio. That's M-I-C-K like the mouse and C-O-L-A-G-E-O. So. Uh, the night before, which is Wednesday, which was Wednesday, Don Cherry was among the Legacy Sports Award honorees at the Sports Museum's Tradition event, also at TD Garden. And uh, he shared the stage uh, with several uh, sports greats, including auto race driver Richard Petty, who had a heck of a hat that night, uh, purple with sequins. It was really something. Uh, Julie Foudy, uh, U.S. Olympic soccer hero. Uh, uh, Paul Pierce, the truth. Uh, the truth uh, set banner 17 free. Um, so uh, let's see, Jim Lonborg, which was cool for me because I'm a child of the 60s and the impossible dream Red Sox. I was going to games before that. So, yeah, I do remember grabbing a a right field grandstand seat in each hand and banging it while we yelled, we want a hit. We want a hit with the sun setting in our faces back when they had the thing called day games. And uh, Canigliaro was obviously my favorite player. Uh, Tony C, my middle name is Anthony. It was I didn't even think that through. I just loved him. And number 25 was always one of my favorite numbers. Gary Doak, miss you, buddy. Um, so uh, last night, big night um, for... Uh, Rick Middleton, who, who uh, gave an amazing tribute to his centerman, Barry Peterson. And, uh, and not to mention, uh, another 25, Mike Krushelniski, his left winger on that line of the early 80s when Rick Middleton was putting up his biggest seasons, 50-goal season, I think it was a 51, and he had a 48, I think. So um, he was always hovering right around that part of his career. Late 70s, he came to the Bruins, actually summer of 76, uh, in a trade for Ken Hodge. Uh, Phil Esposito had already gone to the Rangers in the blockbuster, and he wanted Hodgey with him, and Hodge had fallen out of favor with Don Cherry, so Espo got his wish, 
and Middleton came to the Bruins, a raw, flashy, uh, underdeveloped uh, talent, and um, really, really learned under the tough love and under the great leadership of Don Cherry and um, obviously Wayne Cashman and Terry O'Reilly and Brad Park and Jean Rotello already here. Uh, and formed the late 70s nucleus of the Bruins that challenged the Montreal Canadiens uh, so hard um, and and uh, didn't quite get over the top, but Middleton would have been the toast of the town. Uh, he scored two goals in that Game 7 in Montreal in 1979, the Stanley Cup semifinal, the other May 10th. Um, and um, unfortunately, uh, that game didn't go Boston's way for infamous reasons. Any case, uh, Don Cherry, it was his last game coaching the Bruins. So what I have for you uh, today in Rink Wrap, the podcast, is, uh, and this is awesome. This I came across this stuff by accident. I was looking for photos of Rick Middleton to go with my uh, article in the Standard Times. Uh, and when I was at it, I, I tripped over some of these old clips. And so let's... Uh, let- this is great stuff. Here we go. Uh, the column on June 3rd, 1979 by Don Harrington. His regular column title was called Once Over Lightly. And the headline is Sindon Feels Wrath Over Grapes. I should have gotten my uh, lip balm, my bird's bees, because I'm going to do some reading here. So I'm going to read uh, Don Harrington's column here to you. There's a few things we're going to read here before we're done. Um, Vintage stuff written at the time. This is right after Don Cherry leaves the Bruins. Um, Officially, uh, it was uh, not a firing, but is commonly spoken of as a firing. Here it goes. It goes without saying former Bruins coach Don Cherry was one of the most colorful readers. Readers? Colorful... Well, you know, the reason is I'm stumbling here is because somebody drew a red line over a sentence here. And, um, okay, leaders. (laughs) Sorry about that. Starting again. Take two. Sin and Fields Wrath Over Grapes by Don Harrington. It goes without saying former Bruins coach Don Cherry was one of the most colorful leaders ever to grace the Boston sports scene. But being colorful and outspoken is living dangerously, as others before grapes found out. Montreal Expos manager Dick Williams. Hey, he was the manager of the Red Sox in 67. That's my own parenthetical comment. Uh, We're going to win more than we lose, right? All right. Montreal Expos manager Dick Williams called him as he saw him as Red Sox manager. He even led the impossible dream hose to the 1967 American League pennant. I should have trusted Mr. Harrington. And was fired the next season because he talked too much. The moral is, of course, being a yes man, quote unquote, assures one's longevity as a manager or coach in Boston. On the other hand, Tommy Heinsohn was a, quote, hard noser as Celtics coach, but he got caught in a revolving door of new owners coming and going, owners who didn't know a basketball team from a beach ball and encouraged, quote, unquote, some players, notably the blacks, to bring problems to them instead of Tommy Gunn. That's great for team morale. Then there was good old Chuck's sourpuss Fairbanks. 
Uh, his idea of preparing the Patriots for the playoffs, how about popping some peas there, was to recruit for the University of Colorado on Patriots time and with owner Billy Sullivan paying the phone bills to land to the land of the Buffaloes. The 1978-79 Bruins on paper were not a good hockey team. Ouch. They gave indications of falling apart at the seams for they were old and there were times their goalies might might have sued the defense for non-support. They certainly weren't a Stanley Cup finalist or a semifinalist. In fact, did they really belong in the playoffs even though they won their division crown so many moons uh, before the playoffs began? But they came as close as the next uh, second in defeating the mighty Canadians in the semis, and who knows what would have happened in the final. They were that way because the Bruins, as old as they are, played for Cherry. He affectionately called them the Lunch Pail AC, a name that bugged the Bruins' brass, but oh, how they played for grapes. That's no trick either to get a bunch of well-heeled professional athletes who read the stock market reports and the sports pages to go all out for anyone besides themselves. Cherry's crime, quote-unquote, was that he was too close to his players. If that's what he had to do to win games, parentheses, he was 231, 105, and 64 in five seasons with the Bruins, and the parentheses, then fine. That's what he was paid to do. In the process, he took the Bruins to the Stanley Cup Finals twice and to the semifinals two other years. That's pretty good for a coach who had little or no control over his team and about as much say in player moves and trades. Who's going to coach now? I don't know. But whoever it is has a tough act to follow. Some say it'll be Fred Creighton, the former Atlanta coach, or Eddie Johnston from Chicago. You can also hear Jerry Cheevers and Johnny Busick being mentioned. Interestingly enough, Mick, Mick with another parenthetical comment here, a rink wrap moment. Fred Creighton was the next coach of the Bruins, but he didn't even make it through one season before Harry Sidden fired him, t- took over the bench himself, and then the next season made Jerry Cheevers the coach. And Cheevers lasted almost as long as Don Cherry. All right, back to the column. Don't count Bruins general manager Harry Sinden out either. The reports of his, quote, interest in the job are true. In fact, I think he's wanted to return as Bruins coach all the time. The team needs something dramatic to turn the fans away from Le Affaire Cherry. Who's better to zero in on the guy that sent Grapes backpacking to the Rockies and who wants the job in the first place? Interesting. Okay. So we move on now to... The uh, Colorado Rockies, whom Don Cherry coached uh, after the Bruins, which was a, an expansion team that originally known as the Kansas City Scouts, who came into the NHL in ni- fall of 1974 alongside the Washington Capitals, who were even more pathetic than them. Um, but as we know, the Washington Capitals are the Stanley Cup champions, so no matter how long it takes, uh, they got it done. So good for them. All right, so there's a, uh, an article here from December 3rd, 1979, which is Ray Bork's rookie season. And uh, Cherry and crew drive Bruins bananas by the Associated Press. Before the game, as the team skated around the Boston Garden ice, the fans stood for a minute and applauded Don Cherry. For five years, the man they call Grapes had coached their Bruins, but this night marked his return as a visitor, coach of the Colorado Rockies. Cherry, resplendent as always, wore a three-piece burgundy velvet suit picked just for the occasion. He waved back to the fans. Then he reached into his pocket and produced a bunch of plastic grapes. Then his Rockies reached down and pulled out a 5-3 victory. 
Quote, I don't care where I go, what I do, said the ebullient Cherry. If I win the Stanley Cup, I'll never feel the same, like I did with that crowd giving me that ovation. That's the tops for me. It can't go any higher than that. Colorado rallied from a 2-0 deficit, pulling even near the end of the second period on an unassisted goal by Jack Valaquette and a shorthanded score by Wilf Paymont. Quote, when we were down 2-0, I heard some of our guys say, come on, let's win it for grapes, said Jerry. I guess that's what they did it for. They even gave me the game puck. And Jerry, who left Boston in a contract dispute after last season, gave it to the Bruins by calling a timeout in the final minute of the play. <laughs> <laughs> with his team ahead 4-2. While some coaches use their timeout to give their players a rest or discuss strategy, Cherry spent the 30 seconds signing autographs behind the Colorado bench. Boston scored a few seconds later, pulling within 4-3, but Paymont skimmed his second goal into the unguarded Bruins cage with 11 seconds remaining to assure the triumph. Quote, it's a great two points for us, uh, he said, and I think it means Cherry, after the Rockies' sixth victory in 23 games this season. I think there was an awful lot of heart shown here tonight. All right, so there's that one. All right, now we're going to move on to uh, a former Standard Times uh, columnist, uh, Dick White, whose column, Remember When, uh, on November 19, 1983, is entitled Sour Grapes, Cherry Holds No Bad Feelings. Now, by now, Don Cherry is not coaching in any, any NHL, I don't believe. But here goes the column. Um, and, uh, I, you know, you didn't even need Novocaine for these, but this one, you might, you might want to take something because this is going to be a little longer than the other two. Here goes. It's been said you – and I'm reading these for the first time, by the way. So, um, you know, I don't know what was kosher then versus now. Um, my journalism career had not yet begun for another few years. It's been said you can't argue with success, but don't try telling that to Don Cherry. He and his celebrated Bull Terrier Blue, who Cherry says gave him coaching advice, came to Boston in June 1974 to coach the Lunch Pail AC, his own name for his Bruins team of hard skating and aggressive non-stars. By 1979, they had made two trips to the Stanley Cup Finals, two to the semifinals, and won four consecutive Adams Division titles. By 1979, he was affectionately known as Grapes and enjoyed a huge following. His players would do anything for him. The fans loved him, and blue, and the media flocked around this outspoken, flamboyant, and highly successful proponent of work of the work ethic. Cherry became the working-class hero of Boston, and in 1979, Cherry was fired. Quote, if you want to last as a coach, says Cherry, now 49, quote, you'd better get along with management, because if you don't, you're gone, no matter how good you do. You know, I'm just going to make a parenthetical uh, remark right here that, um, that Don Cherry says that the last hurrah, uh, September 1995, where the Bruins and Montreal played the preseason, that uh, two-period, 25-minute period, 25 -minute period uh, exhibition game that the Bruins trounced the Canadians, and then they had this skate of the greats all over the ice. You know, the, it was Bobby Orr, uh, Norman Levier came out, Ray Bork was obviously there because he's still playing. Um, and then other players, I think, I think Frank Mahovlich was out there, the big M. So it was an awesome night at Boston Garden. Uh, and Don Cherry told me uh, last week on the phone that this was where he and, uh, you know, and Harry Sinden was really nice to him when he showed up and started introducing him to people and all. And Cherry really felt badly that things went the way they did and thought that he kind of got caught up too much in his own uh, 
uh, celebrity and and really kind of blames himself for some of what went on there, uh, you know, and how it kind of snowball rolling downhill. Uh, any case, uh, resuming with Dick White's column, Cherry's close personal ties with his players and his refusal to act like the brass cost him his job but increased his public stature to that of a Norma Ray in hockey skates. It was a price he was willing to pay. Quote, when I started out, I told myself I wasn't going to back down from my principles, says Cherry, from his home in Mississauga, Ontario. I had to make a choice. I was either going to be loyal to the management or to the players, and I felt the players were the ones who performed on the ice, and they always performed for me. I put the people I put people in the building and we won a lot of hockey games. Evidently that wasn't important. What was is getting along with management. We had a six fifty seven winning percentage percentage when I left Boston and I want all the folks to know that Blue hasn't spoken to me since. <laughs> That's his dog. It's good that Blue put a muzzle on it. Good 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 writing there, Dick. Because things are now looking just peachy or cherry. Uh yeah, he was doing so well. Uh, for the former Bruins coach, he is the color announcer for Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday and Wednesday night, and his TV sports talk show, Don Cherry's Grapevine, is syndicated across Canada. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to belabor that point. I want to transition into Rick Middleton here. Um, apologize to Dick White for not reading the whole column. Um, but uh, I want to transition to Ricky Middleton, who, uh, let's see, we get the... Um, Right, here's, a, here's, here's an article on Ricky Middleton from September 26, 1984, which is sort of the beginning of Middleton morphing from top scorer into leadership capacity kind of guy. Uh, he was no longer putting up the big, big numbers. And part of that obviously has to do with the fact that Barry Peterson, at the beginning of that season, uh, developed a tumor in his right bicep, and it wound up, costing him almost the entire season. He came back to play hockey, uh, but it it definitely affected his career. (coughs) Excuse me. And then the next, uh, after the following season, in which his and Middleton's production took a dip, um, Peterson was traded uh, to the Vancouver Canucks as the Bruins were trying to position themselves into the Pierre Turgeon sweepstakes. And whoever finished last would produce the first pick. And the Bruins wanted Vancouver's. And they didn't finish last. They finished third from last. So they didn't get Pierre Turgeon. They got a defenseman named Glenn Wesley. And they also got a young uh, winger in the process uh, who was whose development had kind of plateaued. And uh, his name was Cam Neely. Uh, all right. So September 26, 1984, Middleton reports to Bruins after short vacation by Bob Hanna, Standard Time staff writer. Bob retired, by the way, very shortly after I started working here full time in 2000. Bob still shows up to write about boxing and road races. And uh, he's an amazing guy. And um, obviously, uh, we all uh, you know feel for Bob as he lost his loving wife very recently. But um, uh, what a great guy. What a great journalist. And here's one of his stories from, from uh, September 26, 1984. Uh, Dateline Danvers. That was the Bruins' uh, practice headquarters at the time. They were not yet in Wilmington. 
Rick Middleton is back after a vacation in Hawaii, but you have to understand the situation to appreciate the scene in the Boston Bruins training camp at the Town Line Twin Rinks yesterday. The setting was this. Middleton, the Bruins star right winger who helped Team Canada win the Canada Cup, the six-nation tournament that replaced the World Championships this year, was AWOL from the Bruins training camp, according to Bruins general manager Harry Sinden. Middleton was supposed to report to the Danvers training site Monday. When he did not, Sinden expressed his displeasure to a reporter from a Boston newspaper. Quote, I'm disappointed Ricky hasn't gotten in touch with us, said Sinden. That's not like him. It really isn't. I expected to hear from him. If he said, Harry, would it be okay if I came in Tuesday? Well, that's one thing. But what am I supposed to do? Chase them all over the country? I don't even know where they're going from from Edmonton. Also missing was goalie Pete Peters, but his absence was more understandable since his left ankle is in a cast, the result of a severe sprain in the Canada Cup championship game against Sweden. Still, Sinden was miffed because he hadn't heard from either Middleton or Peters and had no idea where they were or when they were coming. Ray Bork and Swedish defenseman Mats Tallinn, who also played in the Canada Cup tourney, reported to the Bruins camp Monday. Now into the Bruins locker room strolls a sweating Middleton after yesterday's morning workout and takes a seat at his cubicle in front of a trio of waiting reporters. Welcome back, Rick, says one reporter. Thanks, says Middleton. I had a little trouble finding it. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, Back to the story. Sorry. You also have to understand Middleton is one of the most laid-back professional athletes you'd ever want to meet. Where were you, came the inevitable question. I just figured I'd take a couple days off, he answered. I didn't think they wanted me back until Tuesday. I didn't realize they wanted me back Monday. Do you expect any disciplinary action, asked another reporter. I don't think so. I hope not. I'm just happy to be back. He was doing his best to downplay the incident before it gets blown out of proportion, but you could tell, too, he wasn't comfortable being evasive. It's just, just not his style. Just then, teammate Mike Milbury ambled by, quote, did you tell them how you were playing golf and swimming and laying in the sun while we were working our tails off, asked Milbury with a mischievous grin? No, I hadn't told them that up until now, said Middleton, grinning back at Milbury. Okay, I went to Hawaii. I decided to go there for a couple of days. It was a good vacation. I played a little golf and just relaxed. I was actually only there three days. I got there Wednesday night, so I had Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and came back Sunday. I landed yesterday morning. It was beautiful. It gave me a chance to wind down and get away from the press. Quote, uh, parentheses, the Canada Cup tournament was heavily covered by Canadian press. Uh, there was just me and my fiance Debbie. Cheevers was more concerned about the two seven two exhibition losses to Buffalo over the weekend. Asked if Buffalo looked strong, Cheevers replied, any team would have looked strong the way we played in those two games. The Bruins are not off to a very good start. Besides the uninspired performances against Buffalo, Peters is sidelined indefinitely. Mike Gillis, a strong candidate to fill in fill a left-wing vacancy, broke a leg in a practice session Saturday. He'll wear a cast for at least six weeks. Barry Peterson is coming off shoulder surgery, and Nevin Marquardt re-injured the shoulder he separated last year, though he says it is only a bruise, and Sinden is angry at his number one player, Middleton. So that's the article. Uh, Good times, I'll tell you. Uh, Those are also interesting times for the Bruins because, um, and I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, uh, the 1982-83 Bruins, and this article is obviously the beginning of the 84-85 season, uh, 82-83 Bruins were first overall in the NHL, 50, loss, uh, 50 wins, 20 losses, 10 ties, and Ray Bork hit the post in the Montreal Forum as time was expiring, which would have uh, 
given them a tie and allowed them to keep that loss total at 19. Uh, either way, they 110 points to a first overall in the NHL in 82-83 season. The dynastic Islanders uh, in the age in the era when 21 teams made the playoffs. I mean. 21 teams are in the NHL, and 16 of the 21 made the playoffs. Thus, the cliche, everybody makes the playoffs in hockey. Uh, that uh, They always did turn it up and turn it on late in the season. And the Bruins had injuries to O'Reilly and Milbury. And, um, and, uh, just, and Pete Peters did not maintain the Vesna Trophy form he had in the regular season. Um, and uh, Gord Kluzak prematurely at 18, age 18, 19, first pro season, was pressed into top four duty. Uh, it just uh, didn't go Boston's way, and um, the Islanders were able to uh, grad, get one more cup uh, by beating the not-yet-ready-for-prime-time Edmonton Oilers, sweeping them in the final. So, uh, And then Edmonton took over, which a lot of Bruins fans at the time felt like they would be the team to take over. But also remember the Bruins lost Norman Levier during that season uh, to uh, what has recently been termed a stroke. Uh, and it was brain aneurysm uh, that uh, may or may not have been uh, – uh, aggravated or, or set off, what do you want to call it, in that uh, hard hit by Mark Crawford at on the sideboards there, you know, just playing hard, bang, bang, and uh, next thing you know, um, uh, the Bruins lost a wonderful, wonderful hockey player, uh, uh, you know, who's, who, you know, we made earlier reference to the uh, last hurrah in September 95 at Boston Garden in which Levier took the ice and that was a fantastic moment to see him and Ray Bork and Donnie Sweeney skating together uh, again. Um, that was just a, a wonderful, wonderful moment and a way to, a great way to close down the Garden era. Um, and uh, let's see. I'm going to grab a quick sip. I got my gallon here. H2O. For the last three years, inclusive, I have been privileged to participate in the Sports Museum's Tradition event as a writer in the program. Uh, Wayne Cashman two years ago, Rick Middleton last year, Don Cherry this year. So I am going to um, read what is not as accessible as, you know, the column on Middleton uh, when he found out his number was going up or when, uh, you know, leading into this happening all on Thursday night at uh, the Garden. Uh, but we have Don Cherry uh, Hockey Legacy Award. Uh, and I'm going to just uh, read this out there to conclude for today just because um, I wanted to uh, uh, let people read it that wouldn't otherwise have the chance. In the late 1970s, Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito were no longer at the forefront of the Big Bad Bruins, but the work ethic that endeared them to generations of fans only shined brighter as former rivals Brad Park and Jean Rattel teamed with emerging talents Rick Middleton and Terry O'Reilly under their lightning rod coach Don Cherry. Quote, He kind of caused an aura about the team, and he called us the lunch pail gang, and he was the leader, said Middleton. In those days, the majority of fans were not corporate. They were made up of working rank and file. 
a career minor leaguer whose NHL resume consisted of one 1955 playoff game against Montreal. Cherry's playing career paled in comparison to that of his younger brother, Dick Cherry, a larger left-shot defenseman who played 145 NHL games, including six with the Bruins. The Cherry brothers were from Kingston, Ontario, which happens to be Wayne Cashman's hometown and is among places considered as hockey's birthplace. Hockey's soul or not, the sport was the path to economic success for most Canadian kids. Having played 1,125 minor league games, Don Cherry was no exception, but he would make his decisive mark not on the ice but behind the bench. Plaid suits, one foot perched on the dasher as he barked at referee Wally Harris or Islanders captain and former Bruin, Eddie Westfall, along with a nickname, Grapes, that every fan knew and an English bull terrier, Blue, that every fan loved. All of this made Cherry an instant hit in Boston. In the years since, Cherry has acquired massive and at times polarizing celebrity on Canadian television. He would never even had a platform to talk hockey much, however, much less express his unapologetic nationalism had he not brought out the best in the Bruins in the 1970s. Quote, he was a player's coach, and I think what he commanded, expected, was your absolute best effort. So he and I were on the same page, said O'Reilly, who hit his prime years during the 1974-79 Cherry era when he was fortunate to have a coach who sensed the value of his talent. Quote, During the course of my hockey career, some coaches tried to pigeonhole me and just throw me out there when things got rough. I thought the reverse was true. If they just let me loose and let me play my game and things got rough, we'd take care of it, but not let me sit on the bench and let me get cold where I was not emotionally involved. Cherry believed, and O'Reilly became the player who scored a back-breaking overtime winner at the Spectrum that set the Bruins on course to sweep the hated Flyers in the 1977 Stanley Cup semifinal. The following season, they became the first post or Bruins team to win 50 games. And 40 years after the fact, the 1997, I'm sorry, 1977-78 team's 11 20-goal scorers still stands as an all-time NHL record. You couldn't have a team like that now because you couldn't afford them, said Cherry. The Bruins finished second overall with 113 points and took dynastic Montreal to six games in an epic Stanley Cup final. The fans that stuck around fell in love all over again with the Lunchpail Gang, whose coach took on Stan Jonathan, John Wensink, and Al Secord as he had O'Reilly, turning them loose and allowing the Bruins to be more than a team with some tough guys. They became a tough team. Quote, I never told a guy to go out and fight. They did what they had to do. And that's why we could protect guys like Rattel and Middleton, said Cherry, whose playing career included 16 years in the minor leagues. He played twice for Eddie Shore in Springfield, so he came up through the hard life of living on the road. Minor league teams and buses, said Middleton. Talking about Cherry, who had played 78 American Hockey League games. He understood what it took and how hard it was to make it. Those guys who spent some time in the minors could relate to him. That would include Middleton, by the way. Uh, when he arrived in New York in the 1976 trade for Ken Hodge, the flashy Middleton hadn't learned how to play on the defensive side of the puck. Under Cherry, he learned he'd better learn. He knew he'd better learn or he'd wind up riding the pine. Quote, one thing I, that I saw with Don, he was able to read people very well, said Middleton. Whether to get on their back a lot or to praise them, he treated everyone as individuals and was a master at pushing buttons. He certainly did it with me, especially during that first year trying to drill it into me how to be a better defensive player of NHL professional hockey. 
After leaving the Bruins in 1979 after a heartbreaking playoff loss to Montreal amidst reports of differences with general manager Harry Sinden, Cherry's coaching career lasted only one more NHL season with the bottom-feeding Colorado Rockies. Cherry and Sinden would mend fences at Boston Garden's September 1995 last hurrah event. It didn't surprise Middleton that Cherry's regular Saturday night appearances on Coach's Corner segment of Hockey Night in Canada telecast starting in the 1980s quickly became must-see TV. Quote, Don always liked an audience, and we were the biggest drawer in the road in the late 70s, recalled Middleton. The press in town would call up when the Bruins landed, and he would hold court. He wasn't as flashy a dresser, but that came later. We were in Colorado, Middleton continued. Don Cherry was doing an interview, and a reporter asked him, How do you get your team up? And Don says, I think tomorrow I'm just going to tell them to wear their left skate. And it must have wound up on their bulletin board. I don't remember whether or not we won the game, but that's what he did sometimes. He did things just to get their team up, just to give us a challenging game. It was boring for a while after him because no one could ever match his personality. Jerry's criticism of European influences on North American hockey culture took a controversial turn in 2001 when he wouldn't allow European players on his newly founded Mississauga OHL junior team. His outspoken support of Canada joining the United States in the Iraq war caused an uproar that made the Canadian broadcasting company hesitant to renew his contract. But a CBC poll asking for votes on, quote, the greatest Canadian ranked him seventh ahead of Wayne Gretzky, who was 10th. Married almost 20 years to his wife, Luba, Cherry, Cherry's enduring trademark is a rose on his lapel in memory of his first wife, Rose Marie, who died of cancer in 1997 and inspired Rose Cherry's home for kids. After three decades, Cherry is still at it on Hockey Night in Canada intermissions. His suit's as flamboyant as ever and his comments still stirring the pot. Quote, I'll just keep doing it as long as I'm having fun, he said. Coaching the Bruins was fun. I left that too soon. I'm not going to leave this too soon. And that's it. So you got uh, Don Cherry and Rick Middleton and closing an era uh, and also the celebration earlier this season of the 11 uh, 20 goal scorers on that Bruins team. Can you name them all? Uh, tweet at me, at Mick Collagio, and let me know if you can name all those 20 goal scorers uh, on the 1977-78 Bruins. No cheating. All right. So, reminder, Rink Wrap the Podcast, you can get it anywhere you get your podcasts. And I'm really hoping, as we get into the winter season here, that I can start uh, getting the time uh, to line up some guests. Uh, I want to get Mike Loftus, the uh, Gatehouse Bruins beat writer, who's been doing the job so wonderfully for the uh, Patriot Ledger in Quincy, now going back to, what, the 88-89 season, maybe? Um I think I came on to cover the Bruins starting in 91-92 as a radio guy, and, and Mike Loftus was already there. So I uh, want to talk with him and, and obviously with other guys along the way here and other ladies too, um, whoever's covering the team, and, um, and continue bringing some, some good programming because sports radio in Boston um, really doesn't uh, spend enough time on hockey or the Bruins, and, um, and hopefully – we're helping uh, fill the gap here and, and, um, and fill the hole. So that's it for today. And until next time, happy hockey, everyone.